This morning's sermon passage is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 19, verses 13 through 30, and it reads thusly. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and they went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Correctly read, this is Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30. Before I pray this morning, I want to acknowledge that today is a notable day in the life and history of Redeemer. It was six years ago today exactly that we had our first service in this building uh, that was so graciously given to us. So we are thankful today and every day for that gift and would welcome your prayers that the Lord would continue to provide for us uh, in that and so many other ways in the days ahead. But let's pray as we begin this morning. To our eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who makes the impossible possible. We come in awe this morning as we marvel at who you are. You are unsurpassed in beauty and majesty and holiness, and it is an extraordinary thing that you invite us to approach you in worship, not as merely fearful supplicants, but in confident hope as your children. When we examine our hearts, we know that we could not be less worthy to do so. But with all honor to you, we know that we can do so because of what you have done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. Thank you, Father, for such a great salvation. And we have so much for which to be thankful. 
in our own lives and in the life of this church as your body. Thank you for the innumerable ways in which you have and continue to bless and provide and care for us, so many of which we may never know this side of eternity. And even as we acknowledge that, we also know that there are many among us who are facing many challenges and severe hardships. We ask that you would help us to love and care well for them every step of the way. We pray also for all of your churches that gather in worship of you this morning, as well as for our brothers and sisters all over the world, that you would be glorified wherever your people may be found. And that whatever this life and world may bring, that we would all remain faithful to and trust in you. And now, as we open your word this morning, I plead for your help in preaching it. This is a task that is far, far beyond me. And so I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, that every word I say would bring glory to you, that it would bring conviction of sin and spur us to greater holiness in our lives. Father, we ask that you would do a mighty work of salvation here in the lives of all who do not yet know you, and that you would draw us all nearer to you and conform us ever more to the image of your Son. And as we go from this place, help us to live such that your presence in our lives would be evident to all those whom we encounter, our families, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and especially our enemies, that we would love them as you have loved us. It is today and every day in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 19. If you're new to Redeemer, if this is your first time with us, we are working our way through the book of Matthew together. And today we come to Matthew 19, verses 13 through 30. As you're turning there, you'll see that I've titled today's sermon, Who Then Can Be Saved? Which is, of course, a direct quote from the passage that you just heard Kayla read. But it is also, I think, not only a key question being asked in today's passage, but in many ways a question that has been asked and running throughout the entire book of Matthew. You know, particularly in recent weeks, we've been working through a series of passages on Jesus' teaching regarding the kingdom community, what life in that community should look like, and even in addressing that most sensitive questions, who's in and who is out? You consider in just the last couple of chapters alone, we have seen Jesus speak well of and affirm those who would deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him those who would have the humility of a child, those lost sheep after whom Jesus goes after, and those who seek his blessing. But we've also seen him reject those who would lead others into sin, those who refuse to forgive, those who seek to do as little as possible to honor their commitments to the Lord and to their families. Bless Jamie, y'all. The last three weeks, consider he's had church discipline, forgiveness, and divorce and remarriage. He's had a run. Uh, but praise God, he'll use that to work in our lives. Uh, so in, in many, many ways, the text has been asking and answering the questions, what must I be? What must I do to be right with God? And hopefully you also recognize that as an important question in your life, either because you have wrestled with it and you've seen the Lord answer it in your own life, or maybe because you're wrestling with that here today. And if that's the case, that, that's fantastic. We are so very glad that you are here, and we hope that you will walk, let us walk with you as you wrestle and think about that most important of questions. 
But maybe you're here today and, and that doesn't weigh heavily on you. And, and that's okay too. I do hope that in our time together this morning, you will be compelled to confront the question because I believe that today's text is going to show us that the answer to it is both beautiful and surprising. Because as we come to it, we're going to see Jesus continue to flesh out the answer to the question of who can be saved across three different conversations with three fairly different groups of people. First, we're going to see him interact with children who have been brought to him for a blessing. And then second, we're going to see him interact with a guy who scripture describes as a rich, young ruler. And then third, he's going to address his disciples. And as we look at each of these interactions, we want to do so honestly and carefully because it's very easy to misread what Jesus is saying in some of these passages. But rightly understood, the main idea that I think we see running all throughout today's text is this. Salvation is impossible. It is impossible apart from God's work. And God's work is more exhaustive, more complete, and more surprising than we could ever imagine. So let me say it one more time because that's going to frame everything. Salvation is impossible apart from God's work. And his work is more exhaustive, complete, and surprising than we could ever imagine. So that brings us to our first point this morning. Come, children. Come, children. Look back with me at verse 13. It says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on, his hands on them and pray. Now, it's not entirely clear here if this is referring only to infants and very young children or if a broader age range is envisioned. But either way, note the language that they were brought to Jesus, presumably by their parents or other family members. But whatever the case, they did not bring themselves to him. And that's important context for us to keep in mind as we look at today's passage. But verse 13 continues and tells us that the disciples rebuked the people. This is referring to rebuking those who have brought the children. Now, it doesn't tell us why. But it may have been that the disciples felt like they were interrupting Jesus' mission, you know, his important work. Maybe they just were a, a nuisance and a distraction. Maybe they felt like Dr. Alan Grant in the first Jurassic Park movie, who, when asked why he didn't want kids, said, because they're noisy, they're messy, they're expensive, they smell. Not you Redeemer kids, of course. You're very quiet and neat, certainly inexpensive. You smell like a fresh spring breeze. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. But whatever the case, the disciples have placed themselves between these children and Jesus. And Jesus is having none of that. This is not okay because, look, it says in verse 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, as we're going to see Jesus do over and over again in this passage, he flips the expected response. Rather than catering to the seemingly more important people and the matters around him, Jesus gives the strongest encouragement to the children and those who have brought them, saying, let them come to me. Do not hinder them. So it's an early point of application for us today. What, what does that mean for us? Certainly, if you are a parent here today, but frankly, even if you're not, if you are a covenant member of Redeemer, it means we have an obligation to not hinder children from coming to Jesus, but rather to do all that we can to help point them to him. So practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, if you have kids in your home and you're a believer, it means remembering that the Great Commission outlined in Matthew 28 begins at home. It means remembering that we are commanded and have a responsibility to disciple our children. Now, does this mean that if you are not spending at least one hour every night reading 10 chapters of scripture, parsing the Greek and the Hebrew syntax, singing seven hymns, praying, and then going out to mill your own organic flour so you can create your starter sourdough kit thing, that your kids are doomed? Yes. Yes, it does. I'm very sorry. No, no, that's, that's not the point. What it does mean is that we need to live a life 
intentionally pointing our kids to and showing them Jesus in our lives, telling them about it. What does this mean for us? Let them see that in all of its good and its bad and its hard and its wonderful. Let them see that in your life and in your home. It does mean remembering that until Jesus saves them, you are dealing with a lost sinner whose heart of stone needs to be replaced with the heart of flesh and who needs to be brought from death to life by the Holy Spirit, which only God can do. Now, even as that is true, Brittany and I often joke that while we know and believe God has to transform our children's hearts, and we we pray for that, we long for that, heart change or not, they do still have to learn things like, you know, good manners, not punching their siblings, not telling lies. Whether your heart's there or not, you cannot do those things. So we gotta work on that. But in all of these things, we still need Jesus. We still need him. Now, we can, we can chuckle at that, and, and it is funny sometimes watching our kids, but I also, I know that some of you are facing incredibly, incredibly hard spiritual challenges in the lives of your kids. You, you see a wayward heart, and you wonder, are they ever going to find their way home? You watch them wrestle with, with questions of identity and relationships and their value, and, and, and you can't see a way out. You can't You can't see how to point them to Jesus and help them see that he is good. It may mean any number of things in your life, but whatever the case, parents, hear this today. The Lord sees you, and he hears your cry, and he can work in the lives of your kids, even through your and my very, very imperfect parenting. And finally, it means remembering that there will be times that your kids need to see you repent. Because you know what? Parenting well and discipling well is really, really hard. I certainly know that's the case in my own life as a parent. I have to repent to the Lord and and to my children at times because this is hard. Kids, teens in the room, I want to speak to you for just a second. Lock in with me here because I want to tell you the most shocking thing you're going to hear this whole sermon this morning. You ready? It's big news. Your parents are not perfect. (gasps) Oh! I know, I know, it was a shock to me too. I know so much less about parenting since I've become a parent than I did before. It was a great, great blow to me. Um, But more seriously, it's true that your parents are not perfect, but you know what else is true? They love you and they want good for you. So parents, let's do all we can not to hinder our kids or keep them from Jesus. And let's do point them to him with all that is in us. And before we leave this point this morning, this is not just, again, for parents in the room. Even if you are here today and you don't have kids, or maybe you do and they're grown and gone, if you are a covenant member of this church, then recall that one of the covenant promises we make to one another is that we will strive to raise those under our care in the knowledge and love of the Lord, and by word and loving example, seek the salvation of our families and friends. You know, we talk about this in our covenant gatherings. We talk about it in our parent-child dedication ceremonies. It's one of the reasons we so highly value our kids' ministry and our youth ministry and LJ and Megan and all of our volunteers for whom we're so thankful to all of you. Not because we think it is our place to replace parents. That's never our goal. But we do want to walk beside you. Because here's the reality. As of this day here at Redeemer, counting just our members and their families, we have 201 kids under the age of 18. 201. Now, I know if you're in there between services, it feels like 2001, but it's a lot either way. And to point them to Jesus and to not hinder them, we need one another. Friends, their own sin natures in this world we live in, it's going to make it hard enough 
Let's not add to that by forsaking one another. Let's not neglect one another and these precious ones in the life of this church. Now, why is Jesus so emphatic about this? Why is he making such a big deal about this? Look again what he says in verse 14. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. I'm gonna touch just very briefly on this, not because it's unimportant, but because Stephen addressed much of this at length in his sermon back in uh, Matthew 18 on June 4th, and it's, it's very good. I encourage you to go and listen to it if you haven't yet had a chance to do so. But for our purposes this morning, we wanna be clear about two things. First, what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs only to literal children, or that merely by virtue of being a child can someone enter the kingdom. That would That would frankly lead us to some kind of dark places in our theology. That's not what he's getting at. But what he is saying is that the kingdom belongs to such as these. So so what does he mean there? Well, we know from Matthew 18 that he's talking about having the the humility of a child, this trust in Jesus. You know, children trust so readily and without artifice. It can be a little terrifying sometimes how much our children trust. There's a reason we have to teach them not to wander off with the strange man in the white windowless van offering them candy and puppies. Like kids don't do that. It's a bad idea. But, but they, they do trust so readily. And that's, that's what Jesus is calling us to is this, this just guileless, childlike trust in him, placing our entire lives in his hand. And so in doing this, in calling for this, he again upends the disciples' expectations of what he's going to do here, which is not the last time he's going to do so in the passage. And that brings us to our second point, impossibly possible, impossibly possible. Look back at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now that is an interesting question by this man. We know from later in the passage, he's going to claim to have kept all the law. You heard Kayla just read that. We also know from this and other passages that he's a wealthy young man. And from the telling of this story in the book of Luke, he is a ruler, which mostly likely meant a leader in the local synagogue. But regardless, he is a highly, highly respected member of this society. He checks every box that you possibly could to be an upstanding, upright, good citizen of this world. And yet, and yet something has disquieted him so much that he comes to Jesus asking, what good thing must I do to inherit the kingdom of God, to have eternal life, to be saved? That's his question. And before we look at Jesus' response, it is very important to know that in the telling of this same story in Mark chapter 10, it inserts right here that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And we, we have to keep that in mind because Jesus is about to say some really hard things to him, but it comes from a place of deep, profound love for this man. So what does Jesus say in answer to his question? Verse 17, and Jesus said to him, why do you ask me what is, about what is good? There's only one who is good. Now, that's a really interesting question that Jesus turns back on him because the emphasis there is on me. Jesus saying, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. You know, because Jesus knows that God is the only one who is good and the one who is the standard of what is right. And good, we see this all over Scripture, but one particularly strong statement of it is found in Isaiah 45, 18 and 19 where it says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Now, Jesus knows this. And he knows that the rich young ruler knows this. He would have been very, very familiar with the Old Testament and Isaiah and all that it says, which adds some extra poignancy to that question. Why do you care what I think? If that's true, Why are you coming to me? And that's a good question for you to consider this morning. Why do you 
care what Jesus thinks. Some of you need to reflect on that because you've grown up around the Bible and in church for your whole life. And it's very easy to forget that this is the very word of God. That these are not just academic words. These are not just things to have a better day. This is the breath of life from God himself. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're, you're thinking about, you're exploring, you're wrestling with these things. And if so, again, that's, that's wonderful. I mean it when I say we're very, very glad that you're here. and We want to explore this with you, but, but maybe that's where you are. And maybe you think of Jesus as a, you know, a good moral teacher, but you, you kind of struggle with some of his stronger claims, especially those around being God himself or other things that he says. And if so, then I urge you to consider the question, why do you care what Jesus thinks and says? You know, for all of us, let's take care not to slip into that subtle temptation to only look for the things in Scripture that we like and disregard the rest. Because when we do that, what we are essentially saying is that we are God. We are the ultimate standard of what is wrong. When we come to Scripture in judgment over it and say, I'm going to read it and I will decide if this is good or bad or if we should continue to believe this, you've placed yourself in the place of God. No, to that, Jesus would say, you are quite wrong. To the rich young ruler, however, what does Jesus say? Verse 17 again, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, the young man asks a fair question in response, which ones? I would like to know the answer to this question. And that's good. You do want to know that. And look what Jesus does. He ticks off most of the 10 commandments that, make, that relate to our interactions with others and then sums them up in what Jesus describes elsewhere as the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. To which the young man responds, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Okay, pause here. It would have been very, very easy for Jesus to just lock in on this and absolutely blast this guy for his arrogance, for his presumption. But he does it because remember, Mark told us that he loves this man. And so he's after a larger goal. He's after his heart. So he's gonna kind of take him at his word and keep leading him down the path. And look at how he handles it. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Uh-oh. There's a lot going on there. Let's, let's take our time and work through it, trusting the Lord to give us wisdom and right understanding of Jesus' words. So to start, a couple of clarifications. First, when Jesus says, if you would be perfect, perfect there carries the connotation of, of completeness, of maturity, not necessarily moral, sinless perfection. And then second, the point of this passage is not to teach that you are saved by selling your stuff and giving it to the poor. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, Austin, I'm not stupid. That sure seems like what the words on the page are actually saying. That, that seems like a fairly straightforward sentence to me. Don't you try to trick me with your fancy words of sophistry. I can read those words. So, so that, that's fair. We, we want to take care not to try to soften the hard edges of Jesus' teaching. But one basic principle of studying the Bible is letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And in these instances, we know from elsewhere, passages like Romans 7 and all of 1 John, frankly, that we will battle sin our whole lives. And we will not attain sinless moral perfection until Jesus returns or calls us home. We also know from passages like 1 Corinthians 13, 3, that if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. So, so this isn't like a magic thing. If you just do this, then you're going to be perfect. But even as that is true, neither can we interpret this into meaninglessness or just treat it as a, a passing suggestion that had no teeth, had no meat to it. This was a real command to this young man, go, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and come 
follow me. So let me be clear. It is possible. It is possible that God calls you to that today, tomorrow, at some point in your life. I I can't answer that question standing here today if that is the call that God has placed on your life. But what I can tell you is that regardless of what economic strata you occupy, Scripture does speak clearly as to how we ought to think about and approach our riches, our possessions, the things that God has given to us. I want you to consider with me this morning 1 Timothy 6. If you'll flip over there for just a second, it's worth looking at because it's a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth our time. 1 Timothy 6, I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 and then 17 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with the excuse me, with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on riches, or excuse me, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Obviously, we can make sermon upon sermon upon sermon out of this, but it's not today's passage. So I'm going to let that just sit on us because it says it pretty clearly enough. There's not a lot of, again, wordsmithing we need to do there. Whatever else Jesus calls us to, this is a command. It's not an option. So, so if, if, with those clarifications in mind, what is Jesus doing here? Why wouldn't he just tell the man, like he says elsewhere, John 6, kind of all over scripture, that, that what this man needs to do is, is to believe in him. Place his trust in him. I mean, isn't, isn't that what we believe and teach, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Like, what's going on? Well, in a way, he is telling him that, but he's carefully leading the man to realize that he doesn't actually trust God. How do we get there? Well, consider the man, again, he's young, he's rich, he's part of the elite ruling class. All of his life, he has acquired what he has. He has accumulated riches. He's accumulated authority. And and there's nothing here to say that he's done so nefariously or unscrupulously. It is entirely probable that he's done so with great integrity, that doing that, what he's done is not inherently sinful. The problem is he is approaching eternal life. He's approaching his standing with God in exactly the same way. He's looking for what he must do to earn God's favor. And Jesus, as is his way, knows exactly where the man's trust actually lies. And he shows it to him in striking fashion. He asks him to let go of the one thing to which he's clinging above all else. And what happens? He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's a tough moment. For as much as this man thought he wanted and could attain eternal life, Jesus showed him that, in fact, there was something he loved more. And that day, he couldn't let it go. So let me urge you this morning to consider the cost of following Christ. To consider what your life, not your words, not your social media posts, not your lifeway and Hobby Lobby knickknacks, what your life 
says that you value and trust in. Ask the Holy Spirit to take a hard, hard look in your heart and to show that to you. It's a, that's a terrifying prayer. Let me be clear to make, make that. I, I don't think this is an easy thing to do. It's a, it's a terrifying thing to pray. Because make no mistake, it may not be that Jesus calls you to literally sell all of your stuff and get it, give it to the poor. Though again, he might. And he certainly calls you to generosity and sharing and abounding in good works. But what might following Jesus cost you? Maybe it will be your security and your comfort. Maybe your success or just the ability to choose the life that you thought you wanted to have. Maybe it's certain relationships. Or here's a, here's a tough one if you're a parent in the room this morning. What if following Jesus means giving up the dream of American middle-class respectability for your kids or even higher aspirations. If following Jesus means walking away from the things that the world says are good. Do we count that cost in our lives? Will we accept that cost or will we, like the rich young ruler, go away sorrowful because we had great possessions? Does that feel like an impossible weight to bear? Does that seem too heavy? Are, are we without hope? Never. Never. Because consider Jesus' next words in verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who then can be saved? And before we look at Jesus' answer, let's talk about two things. First, over the years, there have been some comically ludicrous attempts to try to soften Jesus' statement about the camel and the eye of a needle. You may be familiar with some of them. Uh, some have tried to argue that the eye of the needle was actually a, a small gate in Jerusalem that camels could go through. They just got on their knees and kind of worked their way through it. Others have tried to say that it wasn't camel. Jesus actually meant rope. You're getting a rope through the eye of a needle. Okay. As a textual linguistic matter, that's nonsense on stilts. There's just nothing there to suggest any of those things is true. Historically, there's no reason to believe that, and it directly undercuts the point Jesus makes right after this. He means it is easier for a full-grown, spitting, nasty camel to go through little tiny eye of a needle. That's all he's getting at. There's no hidden meaning. There's no secret wordplay here. That's what he says. And so we're going to come back to it in a moment. Second, why the strong reaction by the disciples? The phrase greatly astonished. It's, it's accurate, but it lacks the real emotional punch that we need here. You need to read there gobsmacked or just, I mean, mind absolutely blown. This has wrecked everything for them. Why? Not because they're inherently bad people, because it was a bedrock assumption of their culture that if you had attained the things that this man has attained, riches, status, authority, you clearly and undisputably had the favor of God on you. To which Jesus says, no, actually, for that person, salvation is so difficult as to be functionally impossible. To which the disciples rightly respond, if that's your understanding, well, then who in the world could be saved? Now, if you've zoned out for a little bit, I understand, I take no offense, it's fine. But lock back in with me for two minutes, because this is the most important statement in the entire passage, and it's where we find our hope this morning. What does Jesus say in response? Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Here it is. Here, here's our great hope, our only hope. Jesus says, who can be saved? Well, in your own strength, no one. Not you, not you, not you, not you, not you. Most certainly not me. 
but praise God. He says, but with God. But with God. Could there be a more beautiful three-word phrase in all of Scripture? But with God, all things, including your salvation, including your eternal life, are possible. Why? Because God knew and God knows that we are, every one of us, incapable of truly being good, of keeping the fullness of the law, of letting go of all those things to which we tend to trust and to which we so tightly cling. He knows every sin you have committed, every sin that you will commit. And to all of that, to every last moment of that in your life, he sent his son Jesus to bear the weight of them all, that he might say, repent of your sin, believe that Jesus died for you and is raised to life again, and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you will be saved. I told you, the title of the sermon was Who Then Can Be Saved? So who then? Who then? In our strength? No one. But with God, every single person who he calls to himself and who responds in repentance and faith. So if God has saved us, and once we are saved, what ought our lives to look like? That brings us to our third and final point, leave and follow. Leave and follow. This will be very, very brief because much of this last section will also be taken up in next week's passage and we'll look at it more thoroughly then. But for today... Look at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So he, he's speaking kind of on behalf of all the disciples here. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, there are some, some nerdy academic debates around exactly what Jesus means about judging the 12 tribes and sitting on the thrones, and, and that's fine. But for our purposes this morning, Jesus is showing them and us that no matter how much it may cost to follow him, the reward will so far exceed all proportion. Whatever you give up to follow him will be restored to you in such abundance in eternity that it will surpass every sacrifice you could possibly make and then some, that it's not even close no matter how hard this ultimately very brief flash of a life is for you in comparison to eternity, it's nothing. So much good is coming. And then in verse 30, Jesus makes the statement that many who are first will be last and the last first. Again, we'll take this up in much more detail next week's passage, but here he doesn't mean that literally every worldly success is bad or wicked or unimportant, nor that every worldly failure is exalted. But just as he has done throughout, he is inverting all of our expectations about who will be in the kingdom and what will be valued there. Friends, is following Christ costly? Yes. Yes, and there is no softening that. Is the cost worth it? Today, tomorrow, and forevermore, gloriously, yes. So let me close this morning with a beautiful quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. I'm indebted to a commentator, Mike Wilkinson, for pointing this out. But C.S. Lewis, speaking of the cost of following Jesus, says this. Make no mistake, Jesus says. If you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. But if you do not push me away, understand that I'm going to see this job through Whatever suffering it may cost you in earthly life, whatever it costs me, I will never rest, nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my Father can say, 
without reservation that he is well-pleased with you. As he said, he was well-pleased with me. This I can and will do, but I will not do anything less. Yes and amen. Let it be so, Lord. Let's pray. To our great God who, who, who truly does make the impossible possible. Father, eternity is probably not going to be long enough to thank you for all that you have done and are doing in our lives. And yet, woeful though our efforts may be, feeble though they are, we say thank you and we offer our lives to you and ask that you would be pleased to use them for the sake of your name. I do pray that we would not hinder the children among us, but that we would let them come to you. I do pray for those here who are clinging to and trusting in anything or anyone other than you, that you would help them to see that you are greater than everything else that is. And I do pray that we will value you and your kingdom and live that value in such a way that all that could be said of us is it must be you in us. It is once again in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit that we plead for these things. Amen.